Welcome to The Brian Buffini Show, where we explore the mindsets, motivation, and methodologies of success. My name is David Lally. I'm the producer of the show, and we know many of you listening are concerned about what has become an international health crisis. Brian recorded today's podcast a couple of weeks ago, and it represents wisdom and principles from over a hundred years ago, but it's very appropriate for us today. We know a lot of people are nervous, we know a lot of people are scared, and we certainly don't want to mitigate in any way the seriousness of today's health crisis that we are dealing with. However, listen to the words of this content and see how the wisdom of James Allen cuts through today's circumstances like never before. We hope today's episode gives you something to think about. Well, the top of the morning to you and welcome to our show today. I have uh, something very special in store for you. I often talk to you about we want to bring people on our show who've been there, done that. Mindsets, motivation, and methodologies of success. And on occasion, I'll share with you people, books, programs that have really affected me. What we're going to do today is I'm going to read to you a book. It's a very short book, a booklet, you might call it, that was published over 100 years ago. The book's called As a Man Thinketh. And this has had a huge impact on my philosophy, a huge impact on my life. Over a month ago, I, I read this every day for 30 days, and it continues to have a profound impact on my thinking and my habits in changing my life. And I'm going to share it with all of you. James Allen is an Englishman. He's born in 1864 in Leicester, England, born into a, a working class family. His uh, father was a factory knitter, which is interesting because my great grandfather was a factory knitter in Dublin. In 1879 was the start of the massive textile collapse in England. And all that business went over to Singapore. And so Alan's father emigrated out to America to work and get a job, make money, and then bring his family over. Well, tragedy struck after just a couple of days in America. He was in New York City. He got robbed and was murdered. And so at 15 years of age, here's James Allen, and his family is facing economic disaster. He has to get into the workplace find a way to make a living and support his mom and his siblings. It's interesting, uh, he always had a passion to write. His mom always knew he was going to be a great writer, and she always encouraged him in that. His first book, which was written in 1901, was called From Poverty to Power, and he certainly knew something about that. In 1903 was when he published his third and now his most famous book, As a Man Thinketh, which is loosely based on the biblical passage of Proverbs 23.7, which says, As a man thinketh in his heart so is he. Upon his death in in 1912, his wife wrote a very, very powerful thing about the man. And I would say this, if I pass and my bride wrote this about me, I would feel like I'd lived a good life. And she said, he never wrote theories or for the sake of writing, but he wrote when he had a message and it became a message only when he had lived it out in his own life and knew that it was good. I believe that to the core of my being, and that's one of the reasons why I strive to do my very best to bring the best to you, and I will share with you that statement right there of finding people who not only believe certain things, but live it out, prove it, and then share it, that's becoming rarer and rarer. And that's why today I'm reading your book from 1903 as opposed to 2020. So a couple of little things that I'll share as I go through this, I'm going to dive right in here, is the book is written as a man thinketh. It's not a male-dominated society in 1903 and so on and so forth. So when you hear me say all things man, James Allen very clearly was speaking in a language that was understood to everyone at the time. He's speaking about mankind. So gals, you're covered, okay? This is not just for the chin strap crowd. This is for everybody. When I'm talking about man, 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 remember it's mankind. Also, I took the liberty of translating a few words in the Old English. I left a few in but I also translated a few things because there's some old, old English that we just don't use today, and you'd be going, what did he just say? And so on occasion, I've taken the liberty of Mr. Allen's work. I'm sure he'd be okay. And as a special blessing for everybody here today, because this is so important to me and our team, not only are we recording this, but because this is public domain, we've actually published copies of this book with a real nice cover on it for you that you can download. And so... Mr. David Lally, at the end of this recording, will be coming on and letting you know how every one of you can get a copy of this where you can read it, which is another dynamic in addition to listening. Like I said, if you want to go through the exercise like I just did, where I read this every morning for 30 days, I'm going to finish my year by reading it every day for 30 days, 
there's a real dynamic to reading something and the neural pathways in the brain that way. And then obviously you have the podcast in your car, on your workouts, wherever you listen to us so that it gets into your unconscious as well. So there it is. We've got all the resources for you. If you've never been exposed to this, I'm just so delighted to bring it to you. And if you have traipsed across this in the past and had a chance to thumb your way through As a Man Thinketh, I hope it renews you and restores you, encourages you once again. So here we go, As a Man Thinketh. Chapter 1. Thought and Character. The aphorism or phrase, As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he, not only embraces the whole of a man's being, but it is so comprehensive as to reach out to every condition and circumstance of his life. A man is literally what he thinks, his character being the complete sum of all his thoughts. As the plant springs from and could not be without the seed, so every act of a man springs from the hidden seeds of thought and could not have appeared without them. This applies equally to those acts called spontaneous and unpremeditated as to those which are deliberately executed. Act is the blossom of thought, and joy and suffering are its fruits. Thus does a man garner in the sweet and bitter fruitage of his own husbandry. Thought in the mind hath made us what we are. By thought was wrought and built. If a man's mind hath evil thoughts, pain comes on him, as comes the wheel, the ox behind. If one endure in purity of thought, joy follows him, as his own shadow for sure. Man is a growth by law, and not a creation by artifice or trick. And cause and effect is as absolute and undeviating in the hidden realm of thought as it is in the world of visible and material things. A noble and godlike character is not a thing of favor or chance, but is the natural result of continued effort in right thinking, the effect of long-cherished association with godlike thoughts. An ignoble and bestial character by the same process is the result of the continued harboring of groveling thoughts. Man is made or unmade by himself. In the armory of thought, he forges the weapons by which he destroys himself. He also fashions the tools with which he builds for himself heavenly mansions of joy and strength and peace. By the right choice and true application of thought, man ascends to the divine perfection. By the abuse and wrong application of thought, he descends below the level of the beast. Between these two extremes are all the grades of character and man is their maker and master. Of all the beautiful truths pertaining to the soul which have been restored and brought to light in this age, none is more gladdening or fruitful or divine promise and confidence than this, that man is the master of thought, the molder of character, and the maker and shaper of condition, environment, and destiny. As a being of power, intelligence, and love, and the Lord of his own thoughts, man holds the key to every situation and contains within himself that transforming and regenerative agency by which he may make himself what he wills. Man is always the master, even in his weaker and most abandoned state, but in his weakness and degradation he is the foolish master who misgoverns his household. When he begins to reflect upon his condition, and to search diligently for the law upon which he is being established, he then becomes the wise master, directing his energies with intelligence and fashioning his thoughts to fruitful issues. Such is the conscious master, and man can only thus become by discovering within himself the laws of thought, which discovery is totally a matter of application, self-analysis, and experience. Only by much searching and mining are gold and diamonds obtained, and man can find every truth connected with his being if he will dig deep into the mine of his soul, and that he is the maker of his character, the molder of his life, and the builder of his destiny, he may unerringly prove if he will watch, control, and alter his thoughts, tracing their effects upon himself, upon others, and upon his life and circumstances. Linking cause and effect 
by patience and practice and investigation and utilizing his every experience, even to the most trivial everyday occurrence, as a means of obtaining that knowledge of himself, which is understanding, wisdom, and power. In this direction, as in no other, is the law absolute. He that seeketh findeth, and to him that knocketh it shall be opened. For only by patience, practice, and ceaseless importunity can a man enter the door of the temple of knowledge. Chapter 2. Effect of Thought on Circumstances Man's mind may be likened to a garden, which may be intelligently cultivated or allowed to run wild. But whether cultivated or neglected, it must and will bring forth. If no useful seeds are put into it, then an abundance of useless weed seeds will fall therein and will continue to produce their kind. Just as a gardener cultivates his plot, keeping it free from weeds, and growing the flowers and fruits which he requires, so may a man tend the garden of his mind, weeding out all the wrong, useless, and impure thoughts, and cultivating towards perfection the flowers and fruits of right, useful, and pure thoughts. By pursuing this process, a man sooner or later discovers that he is the master gardener of his soul, the director of his life. He also reveals within himself the laws of thought and understands with ever-increasing accuracy how the thought forces and mind elements operate in the shaping of his character, circumstances, and destiny. Thought and character are one, and as character can only manifest and discover itself through environment and circumstance, the outer condition of a person's life will always be found to be harmoniously related to his inner state. This does not mean that a man's circumstances at any given time are an indication of his entire character, but that those circumstances are so intimately connected with some vital thought element within himself that for the time being, they are indispensable to his development. Every man is where he is by the law of his being. The thoughts which he has built into his character have brought him there, and in the arrangement of his life there is no element of chance, but all is the result of a law which cannot err. This is just as true of those who feel out of harmony with their surroundings as of those who are contented with them. As a progressive and evolving being, man is where he is that he may learn and that he may grow. And as he learns the spiritual lesson which any circumstance contains for him, it passes away and gives place to other circumstances. Man is buffeted by circumstances so long as he believes himself to be the creature of outside conditions. But when he realizes that he is a creative power, that he may command the hidden soil and seeds of his being out of which circumstances grow, he then becomes the rightful master of himself. That circumstances grow out of thought, every man knows who has for any length of time practiced self-control and self-purification, for he will have noticed that the alteration in his circumstances has been an exact ratio with his altered mental condition. So true is that when a man earnestly applies himself to remedy the defects in his character and makes swift and marked progress, he passes rapidly through a succession of vicissitudes, which is another word for saying circumstances or his fortune. The soul attracts that which it secretly harbors, that which it loves, and also that which it fears. It reaches the heights of its cherished aspirations. It falls to the level of its unchastened desires and circumstances, and these are the means by which the soul receives its own. Every thought seed sown or allowed to fall into the mind and to take root there produces its own, blossoming sooner or later into act and bearing its own fruitage of opportunity and circumstance. Good thoughts bear good fruit. Bad thoughts bear bad fruit. The outer world of circumstance shapes itself to the inner world of thought, and both pleasant and unpleasant 
external conditions or factors which make for the ultimate good of the individual. As the reaper of his own harvest, man learns by both suffering and bliss. Following the inmost desires, aspirations and thoughts by which he allows himself to be dominated, pursuing the will of the wisps of unpure imaginings or steadfastly walking the highway of strong and high endeavor, a man at last arrives at the fruition and fulfillment in the outer conditions of his life. The laws of growth and adjustment everywhere obtains. A man does not come to the almshouse or the jail by the tyranny of fate or circumstance, but by the pathway of groveling thoughts and base desires. Nor does a pure-minded man fall suddenly into crime by stress of any mere external force. The criminal thought had long been secretly fostered in the heart, and the hour of opportunity revealed its gathered power. Circumstance does not make the man, it reveals him to himself. No such conditions can exist as descending into vice and its attendant sufferings apart from vicious inclinations, or ascending into virtue and its pure happiness without the continued cultivation of virtuous aspirations. And man, therefore, as the Lord and Master of Thought, is the maker of himself, the shaper and author of environment. Even at birth, the soul comes to its own, and through every step of its earthly pilgrimage, it attracts those combinations of conditions which reveal itself, which are the reflections of its own purity and impurity, its strength and weakness. Men do not attract that which they want, but that which they are. Their whims, fancies, and ambitions are thwarted at every step. But their inmost thoughts and desires are fed with their own food, be it foul or clean. The divinity that shapes our ends is in ourselves. It is our very self. Only himself manacles man. Thought and actions are the jailers of fate. They imprison, being base. They are also the angels of freedom. They liberate, being noble. Not what he wishes and prays for does a man get, but what he justly earns. His wishes and prayers are only gratified and answered when they harmonize with his thoughts and actions. In the light of this truth, what then is the meaning of fighting against circumstances? It means that a man is continually revolting against an effect without, while all the time he is nourishing and preserving its cause in his heart. That cause may take the form of a conscious vice or an unconscious weakness, but whatever it is, it stubbornly retards the efforts of its possessor and thus calls aloud for remedy. Men are anxious to improve their circumstances, but are unwilling to improve themselves. They therefore remain bound. The man who does not shrink from self-crucifixion can never fail to accomplish the object upon which his heart is set. This is as true of earthly as of heavenly things. Even the man whose sole object is to acquire wealth must be prepared to make great personal sacrifices before he can accomplish his object, and how much more so he would realize a strong and well-poised life. Here is a man who is wretchedly poor. He is extremely anxious that his surroundings and home comforts should be improved, yet all the time he shirks his work and considers he is justified in trying to deceive his employer on the ground of the insufficiency of his wages. Such a man does not understand the simplest rudiments of those principles which are the basis of true prosperity, and is not only totally unfitted to rise out of his wretchedness, but is actually attracting to himself a still deeper wretchedness by dwelling in and acting out indolent, deceptive, and unmanly thoughts. Here is a rich man who is the victim of a painful and persistent disease as the result of gluttony. He is willing to give large sums of money to get rid of it, but he will not sacrifice his gluttonous desires. He wants to gratify his taste for rich and unnatural foods and have his health as well. Such a man is totally unfit to have health because he has not yet learned the first principle of a healthy life. Here is an employer of labor 
who adopts crooked measures to avoid paying regulation wages and in the hope of making larger profits reduces the wages of his workpeople. Such a man is altogether unfitted for prosperity and when he finds himself bankrupt both as regards reputation and riches he blames circumstances not knowing that he is the sole author of his condition. I have introduced these three cases merely as illustrative of the truth that man is the causer, though nearly always is unconsciously, of his circumstances, and that whilst aiming at a good end, he is continually frustrating its accomplishment by encouraging thoughts and desires which cannot possibly harmonize with that end. Such cases could be multiplied and varied almost indefinitely, but this is not necessary, as the reader can, if he so resolves, trace the action of the law of thought in his own mind and life. And until this is done, mere external facts cannot serve as a ground of reasoning. Circumstances, however, are so complicated, thought is so deeply rooted, and the conditions of happiness vary so vastly with individuals that a man's entire soul condition, although it may be known to himself, cannot be judged by another from the external aspect of his life alone. A man may be honest in certain directions, yet suffer privations. A man may be dishonest in certain directions, yet acquire wealth. But the conclusion usually formed that the one man fails because of his particular honesty and that the other prospers because of his particular dishonesty is the result of a superficial judgment, which assumes that the dishonest man is almost totally corrupt and the honest man almost entirely virtuous. In the light of a deeper knowledge and wider experience, such judgment is found to be erroneous. The dishonest man may have some admirable virtues, which the other does not possess, and the honest man, obnoxious vices, which are absent in the other. The honest man reaps the good results of his thoughts and acts. He also brings upon himself the sufferings which vices produce. The dishonest man, likewise, garners his own suffering and happiness. It is pleasing to human vanity to believe that one suffers because of one's virtue. But not until a man has extirpated every sickly, bitter, and impure thought from his mind and washed every sinful stain from his soul can he be in a position to know and declare that his sufferings are the result of his good and not of his bad qualities. And on the way to, yet long before he has reached that supreme perfection, he will have found, working in his mind and life, the great law which is absolutely just and which cannot therefore give good for evil and evil for good. Possessed of such knowledge, he will then know, looking back upon his past ignorance and blindness, that his life is, and always was, justly ordered, and that all his past experiences, good and bad, were the equitable outworking of his evolving yet unevolved self. Good thoughts and actions can never produce bad results. Bad thoughts and actions can never produce good results. This is but saying that nothing can come from corn but corn, nothing from nettles but nettles. Men understand this law in the natural world and work with it, but few understand it in the mental and moral world, though its operation there is just as simple and undeviating, and they therefore do not cooperate with it. Suffering is always the effect of wrong thought in some direction. It is an indication that the individual is so out of harmony with himself and with the law of his being. The sole and supreme use of suffering is to purify, to burn out all that is useless and impure. Suffering ceases for him who is pure. There could be no object in burning gold after the dross had been removed, and a perfectly pure and enlightened being could not suffer. The circumstances which a man encounters with suffering are the result of his own mental inharmony. The circumstances which a man encounters with blessedness are the result of his own mental harmony. Blessedness, not material possessions, is the measure of right thought. Wretchedness, not lack of material possessions, is the measure of wrong thought. 
A man may be cursed and rich. He may be blessed and poor. Blessedness and riches are only joined together when the riches are rightly and wisely used. And the poor man only descends into wretchedness when he regards his lot as a burden unjustly imposed. Indigence, or poverty, and indulgence are the two extremes of wretchedness. They are both equally unnatural and the result of mental disorder. A man is not rightly conditioned until he is a happy, healthy, and prosperous being. And happiness, health, and prosperity are the result of a harmonious adjustment of the inner with the outer, of the man with his surroundings. A man only begins to be a man when he ceases to whine and revile, and commences to search for the hidden justice which regulates his life. And as he adapts his mind to that regulating factor, he ceases to accuse others as the cause of his condition, and builds himself up in strong and noble thoughts, ceases to kick against circumstances, but begins to use them as aids to his more rapid progress, and as a means of discovering the hidden powers and possibilities within himself. Law, not confusion, is the dominating principle in the universe. Justice, not injustice, is the soul and substance of life. And righteousness, not corruption, is the molding and moving force in the spiritual government of the world. This being so, man has but to right himself to find that the universe is right. And during the process of putting himself right, he will find that, as he alters his thoughts towards things and other people, things and other people will alter towards him. The proof of this truth is in every person, and it therefore admits of every investigation by systematic introspection and self-analysis. Let a man radically alter his thoughts, and he will be astonished at the rapid transformation it will affect in the material conditions of his life. Men imagine that thought can be kept secret, but it cannot. It rapidly crystallizes into habit, and habit solidifies into circumstance. Bestial thoughts crystallize into habits of drunkenness and sensuality, which solidify into circumstances of destitution and disease. Impure thoughts of every kind crystallize into enervating and confusing habits, which solidify into distracting and adverse circumstances. Thoughts of fear, doubt, and indecision crystallize into weak, unmanly and irresolute habits, which solidify into circumstances of failure, indigence, and slavish dependence. Lazy thoughts crystallize into habits of uncleanness and dishonesty, which solidify into circumstances of foulness and beggary. Hateful and condemnatory thoughts crystallize into habits of accusation and violence, which solidify into circumstances of injury and persecution. Selfish thoughts of all kinds crystallize into habits of self-seeking, which solidify into circumstances more or less distressing. On the other hand, beautiful thoughts of all kinds crystallize into habits of grace and kindliness, which solidify into genial and sunny circumstances. Pure thoughts crystallize into habits of temperance and self-control which solidify into circumstances of repose and peace. Thoughts of courage, self-reliance, and decision crystallize into manly habits, which solidify into circumstances of success, plenty, and freedom. Energetic thoughts crystallize into habits of cleanliness and industry, which solidify into circumstances of pleasantness. Gentle and forgiving thoughts crystallize into habits of gentleness, which solidify into protective and preservative circumstances. Loving and unselfish thoughts crystallize into habits of self-forgetfulness for others, which solidify into circumstances of sure and abiding prosperity and true riches. A particular train of thought persisted in, be it good or bad, cannot fail to produce its results on the character and circumstances. A man cannot directly choose his circumstances, but he can choose his thoughts. So indirectly, 
yet surely shape his circumstances. Nature helps every man to the gratification of the thoughts which he most encourages, and opportunities are presented which will most speedily bring to the surface both the good and evil thoughts. Let a man cease from his sinful thoughts, and all the world soften towards him, and be ready to help him. Let him put away his weakly and sickly thoughts, and lo, opportunities will spring up on every hand to aid his strong resolves. Let him encourage good thoughts, and no hard fate shall bind him down to wretchedness and shame. The world is your kaleidoscope, and the varying combinations of colors which at every succeeding moment it presents to you are the exquisitely adjusted pictures of your ever-moving thoughts. Chapter 3 Effect of Thought on Health and the Body The body is the servant of the mind. It obeys the operations of the mind, whether they be deliberately chosen or automatically expressed. At the bidding of unlawful thoughts, the body sinks rapidly into disease and decay. At the command of glad and beautiful thoughts, it becomes clothed with usefulness and beauty. Disease and health, like circumstances, are rooted in the thought. Sickly thoughts will express themselves through a sickly body. Thoughts of fear have been known to kill a man as speedily as a bullet, and they are continually killing thousands of people just as surely, though less rapidly. The people who live in fear of disease are the people who get it. Anxiety quickly demoralizes the whole body and lays it open to the entrance of disease, while impure thoughts, even if not physically indulged, will soon shatter the nervous system. Strong, pure, and happy thoughts build up the body in vigor and grace. The body is a delicate and plastic instrument which responds readily to the thoughts by which it is impressed and habits of thought will produce their own effects, good or bad, upon it. Men will continue to have impure and poisoned blood so long as they propagate unclean thoughts. Out of a clean heart comes a clean life and a clean body. Out of a defiled mind proceeds a defiled life and a corrupt body. Thought is the fount of action, life, and manifestation. Make the fountain pure, and all will be pure. Change of diet will not help a man who will not change his thoughts. When a man makes his thoughts pure, he no longer desires impure food. Clean thoughts make clean habits. The so-called saint who does not wash his body is not a saint. He who has strengthened and purified his thoughts does not need to consider the malevolent microbe. If you would protect your body, guard your mind. If you would renew your body, beautify your mind. Thoughts of malice, envy, disappointment, despondency rob the body of its health and grace. A sour face does not come by chance. It is made by sour thoughts. Wrinkles that mar are drawn by folly, passion, and pride. I know of a woman of 96 who has the bright, innocent face of a girl. I know a man, well under middle age, whose face is drawn into inharmonious contours. The one is the result of a sweet and sunny disposition. The other is the outcome of passion and discontent. As you cannot have a sweet and wholesome abode, unless you admit the air and sunshine freely into your rooms, so a strong body and a bright, happy, or serene countenance can only result from the free admittance into the mind of thoughts of joy and goodwill and serenity. On the faces of the aged, there are wrinkles made by sympathy, others by strong and pure thought, and others are carved by passion, who cannot distinguish them. With those who have lived righteously, age is calm, peaceful, and softly mellowed, like the setting sun. I have recently seen a philosopher on his deathbed. He was not old except in years. He died as sweetly and peacefully as he had lived. There is no physician like cheerful thought for dissipating the ills of the body. 
there is no comforter to compare with goodwill for dispersing the shadows of grief and sorrow. To live continually in the thoughts of ill will, cynicism, suspicion, and envy is to be confined in a self-made prison hole. To think well of all, to be cheerful with all, to patiently learn to find the good in all, such unselfish thoughts are the very portals of heaven. And to dwell day by day in thoughts of peace towards every creature which will bring abounding peace to their possessor. Chapter 4 Thought and Purpose Until thought is linked with purpose, there is no intelligent accomplishment. With the majority, the bark of thought is allowed to drift upon the ocean of life. Aimlessness is a vice, and such drifting must not continue for him who would steer clear of catastrophe and destruction. They who have no central purpose in their life fall an easy prey to petty worries, fears, troubles, and self-pityings, all of which are indications of weakness, which lead just as surely as deliberately planned sins, though by a different route, to failure, unhappiness, and loss. For weakness cannot persist in a power-evolving universe. A man should conceive of a legitimate purpose in his heart and set out to accomplish it. He should make this purpose the centralizing point of his thoughts. It may take the form of a spiritual ideal, or it may be a worldly object, according to his nature at the time being. But whichever it is, he should steadfastly focus his thought forces upon the object which he has set before him. He should make this purpose his supreme duty, and should devote himself to its attainment, not allowing his thoughts to wander away into ephemeral fancies, longings, and imaginings. This is the royal road to self-control and true concentration of thought. Even if he fails again and again to accomplish his purpose, as he necessarily must until weakness is overcome, the strength of character gained will be the measure of his true success, and this will form a new starting point for future power and triumph. Those who are not prepared for the apprehension of a great purpose should fix the thoughts upon the faultless performance of their duty, no matter how insignificant their task may appear. Only in this way can the thoughts be gathered and focused, and resolution and energy be developed. Which being done, there is nothing which may not be accomplished. The weakest soul, knowing its own weakness, and believing this truth that strength can only be developed by effort and practice, will thus, believing at once, begin to exert itself. And adding effort to effort, patience to patience, and strength to strength, will never cease to develop and will at last grow divinely strong. As the physically weak man can make himself strong by careful and patient training, so the man of weak thoughts can make them strong by exercising himself in right thinking. To put away aimlessness and weakness, and to begin to think with purpose, is to enter the ranks of those strong ones who only recognize failure as one of the pathways to attainment, who make all conditions serve them, and who think strongly, attempt fearlessly, and accomplish masterfully. Having conceived of his purpose, a man should mentally mark out a straight pathway to its achievement. Looking neither to the left nor the right, doubts and fears should be rigorously excluded. They are disintegrating elements which break up the straight line of effort, rendering it crooked, ineffectual, useless. Thoughts of doubt and fear never accomplish anything and never can. They always lead to failure. Purpose, energy, power to do, and all strong thoughts cease when doubt and fear creep in. The will to do springs from the knowledge that we can do. Doubt and fear are the great enemies of knowledge, and he who encourages them, who does not slay them, thwarts himself at every step. He who has conquered doubt and fear has conquered failure. His every thought is allied with power, and all difficulties are bravely met and wisely overcome. 
His purposes are seasonably planted, and they bloom and bring forth fruit which does not fall prematurely to the ground. Thought, allied fearlessly to purpose, becomes creative force. He who knows this is ready to become something higher and stronger than a mere bundle of wavering thoughts and fluctuating sensations. He who does this has become the conscious and intelligent wielder of his mental powers. Chapter 5 The Thought Factor in Achievement All that a man achieves, and all that he fails to achieve, is the direct result of his own thoughts. In a justly ordered universe, where loss of equipose, or the balance of forces, would mean total destruction, individual responsibility must be absolute. A man's weakness and strength, purity and impurity, are his own, and not another man's. They are brought about by himself, and not by another. And they can only be altered by himself, never by another. His condition is also his own, and not another man's. His suffering and his happiness are evolved from within. As he thinks, so he is. As he continues to think, so he remains. A strong man cannot help a weaker, unless that weaker is willing to be helped. And even then, the weak man must become strong of himself. He must, by his own efforts, develop the strength which he admires in another. None but himself can alter his condition. It has been usual for men to think and to say, Many men are slaves because one is an oppressor. Let us hate the oppressor. Now, however, there is amongst an increasing few a tendency to reverse this judgment and to say, One is an oppressor because many are slaves. Let us despise the slaves. The truth is that oppressor and slave are co-operators in ignorance and while seeming to afflict each other, are in reality afflicting themselves. A perfect knowledge perceives the action of law in the weakness of the oppressed, and the misapplied power of the oppressor. A perfect love, seeing the suffering which both states entail, condemns neither. A perfect compassion embraces both oppressor and oppressed. He who has conquered weakness and has put away all selfish thoughts belongs neither to oppressor nor oppressed. He is free. A man can only rise, conquer, and achieve by lifting up his thoughts. He can only remain weak and abject and miserable by refusing to lift up his thoughts. Before a man can achieve anything, even in worldly things, he must lift his thoughts above slavish animal indulgence. He may not, in order to succeed, give up all animality and selfishness by any means. But a portion of it must at least be sacrificed. A man whose first thought is bestial indulgence could neither think clearly nor plan methodically. He could not find and develop his latent resources and would fail in any undertaking. Not having commenced to manfully control his thoughts, he is not in a position to control affairs and to adopt serious responsibilities. He is not fit to act independently and stand alone, but he is limited only by the thoughts which he chooses. There can be no progress, no achievement without sacrifice, and a man's worldly success will be in the measure that he sacrifices his confused animal thoughts and fixes his mind on the development of his plans and the strengthening of his resolution and self-reliance. And the higher he lifts his thoughts, the more manly, upright, and righteous he becomes. The greater will be his success. The more blessed and enduring will be his achievements. The universe does not favor the greedy, the dishonest, the vicious. Although on the mere surface, it may sometimes appear to do so. It helps the honest, the magnanimous, the virtuous. All the great teachers of the ages have declared this in varying forms. And to prove and know it, a man has but to persist in making himself more and more virtuous by lifting up his thoughts. Intellectual achievements are the result of thought consecrated to the search of knowledge, or for the beautiful and true in life and nature. 
Such achievements may be sometimes connected with vanity and ambition, but they are not the outcome of those characteristics. They are the natural outgrowth of long and arduous effort and of pure and unselfish thoughts. Spiritual achievements are the consummation of holy aspirations. He who lives constantly in the conception of noble and lofty thoughts, who dwells upon all that is pure and unselfish, will as surely as the sun reaches its zenith and the moon its full, become wise and noble in character, and rise in a position of influence and blessedness. Achievement of whatever kind is the crown of effort, the diadem of thought. By the aid of self-control, resolution, purity, righteousness, and well-directed thought, a man ascends. By the aid of animality, indolence, impurity, corruption, and confusion of thought, a man descends. A man may rise to high success in the world, and even to lofty altitudes in the spiritual realm, and again descend into weakness and wretchedness by allowing arrogant, selfish, and corrupt thoughts to take possession of him. Victories attained by right thought can only be maintained by watchfulness. Many may give way when success is assured and rapidly fall back into failure. All achievements, whether in the business, intellectual, or spiritual world, are the results of definitely directed thought, are governed by the same law, and are of the same method. The only difference lies in the object of attainment. He who would accomplish little must sacrifice little. He who would achieve much must sacrifice much. And he who would attain highly must sacrifice greatly. Chapter 6 Visions and Ideals The dreamers are the saviors of the world. As the visible world is sustained by the invisible, so men, through all their trials and sins and sordid vocations, are nourished by the beautiful visions of their solitary dreamers. Humanity cannot forget its dreamers. It cannot let their ideals fade and die. It lives in them. It knows them as the realities which it shall one day see and know. Composer, sculptor, painter, poet, prophet, sage, these are the makers of the afterworld, the architects of heaven. The world is beautiful because they have lived. Without them, laboring humanity would perish. He who cherishes a beautiful vision, a lofty ideal in his heart, will one day realize it. Columbus cherished a vision of another world, and he discovered it. Copernicus fostered the vision of a multiplicity of worlds and a wider universe, and he revealed it. Buddha beheld the vision of a spiritual world of stainless beauty and perfect peace, and he entered into it. Cherish your visions. Cherish your ideals. Cherish the music that stirs in your heart the beauty that forms in your mind, the loveliness that drapes your purest thoughts. For out of them will grow all delightful conditions, all heavenly environment of these. If you but remain true to them, your world will at last be built. To desire is to obtain. To aspire is to achieve. Shall man's basest desires receive the fullest measure of gratification and his purest aspirations starve for lack of sustenance? Such is not the law. Such a condition of things can never obtain, ask, and receive. Dream lofty dreams, and as you dream, so shall you become. Your vision is the promise of what you shall one day be. Your ideal is the prophecy of what you shall at last unveil. The greatest achievement was at first and for a time a dream. The oak sleeps in the acorn. The bird waits in the egg, and in the highest vision of the soul, a waking angel stirs. Dreams are the seedlings of realities. Your circumstances may be uncongenial, but they shall not long remain so if you but perceive an ideal and strive to reach it. You cannot travel within and stand still without. Here is a youth, hard pressed by poverty and labor, confined long hours in an unhealthy workshop unschooled and lacking all the arts of refinement. But he dreams of better things. He thinks of intelligence, of refinement, of grace and beauty. He conceives of 
mentally builds up an ideal condition of life. The vision of a wider liberty and a larger scope takes possession of him. Unrest urges him to action, and he utilizes all his spare time and means, small though they are, to the development of his latent powers and resources. Very soon, so altered has his mind become that the workshop can no longer hold him. It has become so out of harmony with his mentality that it falls out of his life as a garment is cast aside, and with the growth of opportunities which fit the scope of his expanding powers, he passes out of it forever. Years later, we see this youth as a full-grown man. We find him a master of certain forces of the mind, which he wields with worldwide influence and almost unequaled power. In his hand, he holds the cords of gigantic responsibility. He speaks and, lo, lives are changed. Men and women hang upon his words and remold their characters, and sunlike, he becomes the fixed and luminous center round which innumerable destinies revolve. He has realized the vision of his youth. He has become one with his ideal. And you too, youthful reader, will realize the vision, not the idle wish, of your heart. Be it base or beautiful, or a mixture of both, for you will always gravitate towards that which you secretly most love. Into your hands will be placed the exact results of your own thoughts. You will receive that which you earn, no more, no less. Whatever your present environment may be, you will fall, remain, or rise with your thoughts, your vision, or your ideal. You will become as small as your controlling desire, as great as your dominant aspiration. In the beautiful words of Stanton Kirkham Davis, you may be keeping accounts, and presently you shall walk out of the door that for so long has seemed to you the barrier of your ideals, and shall find yourself before an audience, the pen still behind your ear, the ink stains on your fingers, and there and then shall pour out the torrent of your inspiration. You may be driving sheep, and you shall wander to the city bucolic and open-mouthed, shall wander under the intrepid guidance of the spirit into the studio of the master, and after a time he shall say, I have nothing more to teach you. And now you have become the master, who did so recently dream of great things while driving sheep, you shall lay down the saw and the plane to take up yourself the regeneration of the world. The thoughtless, the ignorant, and the indolent, seeing only the apparent effects of things and not the things themselves, talk of luck, of fortune, and chance. Seeing a man grow rich, they say, how lucky he is. Observing another become intellectual, they exclaim, how highly favored he is. And noting the saintly character and wide influence of another, they remark, how chance aids him at every turn. They do not see the trials and failures and struggles which these men have voluntarily encountered in order to gain their experience, have no knowledge of the sacrifices they have made, of the undaunted efforts they have put forth, of the faith that they have exercised, that they might overcome the apparently insurmountable and realize the vision of their heart. They do not know the darkness and the heartaches, they only see the light and joy and call it luck. They do not see the long and arduous journey, but only behold the pleasant goal and call it good fortune. They do not understand the process, but only perceive the result and call it chance. In all human affairs there are efforts and there are results, and the strength of the effort is the measure of the result. Chance is not. Gifts, powers, material, intellectual, and spiritual possessions are the fruits of effort. They are thoughts completed, objects accomplished, visions realized. The vision that you glorify in your mind, the ideal that you enthrone in your heart, this you will build your life by, this you will become. Chapter 7. Serenity. Calmness of mind is one of the beautiful jewels of wisdom. It is a result of long and patient effort in self-control. Its presence is an indication of ripened experience and of a more than ordinary knowledge of the laws and operations of thought. A man becomes calm in the measure that he understands himself 
as the thought-evolved being. For such knowledge necessitates the understanding of others as the result of thought. And as he develops a right understanding and sees more and more clearly the internal relations of things by the action of cause and effect, he ceases to fuss and fume and worry and grieve and remains poised, steadfast, and serene. The calm man, having learned how to govern himself, knows how to adapt himself to others, and they in turn reverence his spiritual strength and feel that they can learn of him and rely upon him. The more tranquil a man becomes, the greater is his success, his influence, and his power for good. Even the ordinary trader will find his business prosperity increase as he develops a greater self-control and equanimity for people will always prefer to deal with a man whose demeanor is strongly equable. The strong, calm man is always loved and revered. He is like a shade-giving tree in a thirsty land or a sheltering rock in a storm. Who does not love a tranquil heart, a sweet-tempered, balanced life? It does not matter whether it rains or shines or what changes come to those possessing these blessings, for they are always sweet, serene, and calm. That exquisite poise of character, which we call serenity, is the last lesson of culture, the fruitage of the soul. It is precious as wisdom, more to be desired than gold, yea, than even fine gold. How insignificant mere money-seeking looks in comparison with the serene life. A life that dwells in the ocean of truth, beneath the waves, beyond the reach of tempests, in the eternal calm. How many people we know who sour their lives, who ruin all that is sweet and beautiful by explosive tempers, will destroy their poise of character and make bad blood. It is a question whether the great majority of people do not ruin their lives and mar their happiness by lack of self-control. How few people we meet in life who are well-balanced, who have the exquisite poise which is characteristic of the Finnish character. Yes, humanity surges with uncontrolled passion, is tumultuous with ungoverned grief, is blown about by anxiety and doubt, only the wise man. Only he whose thoughts are controlled and purified makes the winds and the storms of the soul obey him. Tempest-tossed souls, wherever ye may be, under whatsoever conditions ye may live, know this in the ocean of life the isles of blessedness are smiling, and the sunny shore of your ideal awaits your coming. Keep your hand firmly upon the helm of thought, in the bark of your soul reclines the commanding master. He does but sleep. Wake him. Self-control is strength. Right thought is mastery. Calmness is power. Say unto your heart, Peace, be still. Boy, it's a lot to digest, isn't it? These seven chapters are challenging, thought-provoking, Certainly not written with the comforting thoughts of today's communication standards. And because of that, I really like him. I would encourage you to listen to this over and over again. Rather than fight the content, just in the privacy of your own mind and heart as you listen to this, let yourself be challenged in those areas of character. Let yourself be challenged in the areas of what is your thought life truly like. I'd encourage you to listen to it over and over again. In an upcoming episode called What I Learned from James Allen, I'll be breaking down the applications. I always believe you eat the meat and throw away the bones. You don't have to agree with everything James Allen says. You don't have to agree with everything he shares. But I do know this. In coaching people for the past 25 years and being on my own journey of personal growth and development for the past 35 years, I agree with an awful lot the man has to say when it comes to success and change in your life. Now, as a special gift for all of you, because another dynamic of really transforming your thought life is reading. And the wonderful staff here at the Brian Buffini Show have put together an opportunity for you to get a free copy of this book, As a Man Thinketh. And to learn how to get this great resource, I'm going to hand you over to As How a Lally Thinketh, 
And David Lally is going to share with you a couple of quick things that you can do to come and download and get a copy of this book so they can really aid you in the process of transforming your thinking, transforming your character, and transforming your life. And then join me in an upcoming episode called What I Learned from James Allen, where I really break this down and I'll share with you what I get from this. And I'll share with you my insights on it and how ultimately this book has helped shape me and influence me and helped me become a better man, a better husband, a better father, a better boss, and more successful. So until next time, God bless. And here's Mr. Lally. That was powerful, Brian. The dulcet tones of Brian Buffini. But let's face facts. We don't really want to know how a Lally thinketh. And to circle back on what he said, visit thebrianbuffinishow.com slash insiders to download your free copy of this classic book, all newly designed by the team here at The Brian Buffini Show. In the meantime, I'll leave you with Brian's mum, Therese, for a little Irish blessing. May the road rise up to meet you, and may the wind always be at your back. May the rain fall soft upon your fields, and the sun shine warm upon your face. And until we meet again, may God hold you in the hollow of his hand. See you next time. (laughs) 